guys. Um, welcome back to By the Numbers. Um, it is Friday, April 9th, and a lot has happened since we last saw you. We, the national champion, was decided. Um, a lot happened with basketball here at Villanova. Um, lots of college basketball transfers, um, NFL news as well with, with the trade market. So lots of, of uh, things to go over. Absolutely excited. Got a good show for you guys today. Yeah, looking back on those those final four games and championship, I think we got one good game, but I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, so let's let's jump right into it. Um, I guess we can start off um, with the Cats. So obviously the, the big news of the week um, was uh, Jeremiah Robinson Earl declaring for the draft. Um, huge blow to our season next year, but one that we kind of expected. Um, he was last season almost. Um, it was kind of a question as to whether he was going to return. So. Um, to get two seasons out of him was awesome. Um, wish him the absolute best at the next level. I think he's going to fit in well um, at the NBA level. Yeah, like what are your guys' thoughts on that in terms of um, were you surprised by it? Did you see um, it coming? Or like how does that affect our team chemistry next season? I wasn't surprised by it at all, really. Um, you know, Jay Wright always tells the guys his his position on this is always pretty – consistent in that go get your money go to the nba while you can and um i think jeremiah's draft stock couldn't get much higher than it is right now because of the way that he really took over the team in the um in march madness this year with calling out and he had you know he was a co co-sharing the um big east player of the year and so he just had a had a great season. So there's no real reason for him to stay on a personal level unless he really wanted to get his degree. Um, but it seems like he made the the right decision for himself. And so all all good, you know. I'm happy to have two years, like you just said, of Jerem um Jeremiah. And so I'm I'm happy for him. Yeah, I thought his performance in the tournament especially was really impressive. Uh, the team really needed someone to step up in lieu of Colin Gillespie going out with injury, and I think he did that uh, very well. We talked about this last week, but in our final game against Baylor, he he was incredible, especially during the first half. I wish the best to him in the NBA. He he spent a great two years here. I, his fit is kind of interesting. It's 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 frustrating that somebody who, as good as he was and how much effort he put in is probably still going to end up going to the bottom of the first round, probably at the highest, because his fit in the NBA is so liquid. He's kind of a tweener on the defensive side of the ball. But I think, you know, a guy like him who makes, you know, the right plays, he played under Villanova for two years with Jay Wright. I think there's value in that. Uh, so I think I think he'll make the league. I think he'll, he'll have some staying power there. Uh, but definitely sad to see him go. And it will be interesting to talk about what the future of Villanova basketball looks like. Yeah, I kind of see him as like a um, Chris Bosh. I mean, obviously not that good in terms of when he came out of school, but um, – Bosch was never known for his ability to shoot threes, and obviously Jeremiah isn't known for that either. Um, but I do think he's a the, – the term winning basketball player gets tossed around a lot, but I think it does apply to uh, Jeremiah because he rarely turns the ball over. Um, he shoots good shots on every possession that he has the ball um, and just generally is a good team player, which I think is a need that a lot of NBA teams kind of need to have because of how ball-dominant uh, teams are. These days, you know, he doesn't have to go into, say, Portland and take all the shots when you have Dame Lillard at point guard. They need guys to come in, play defense, and I put the team first. And obviously, Jay Wright turns out players that fit that exact criteria. So, the one thing that differentiates them for me, sorry, just want to add one last thing about the Chris Bosch comparison. I, I can kind of see that. The problem with me is the height. He's only 6'9. Chris Bosch was 6'11. Yeah. So, it's going to be hard for him to guard kind of the bigger centers. Um, so, he's kind of restricted just to the kind of like the fours. Um, but I think he's, I mean, he's such a smart player. I mean, you saw that on the court when he's at Villanova. So, yeah, I mean, completely agree. He'll, he'll find a spot in the league. And this might segue yeah. to another uh, interesting thing with our keeping up with the Cats segment is, um, you know, it's time for NBA teams to stop sleeping on Villanova players. Look at Sadiq Bay. You know, he's having such a remarkable season with Detroit right now. He has the record for the most threes by a rookie uh, in, in their franchise history. And um, just to see him get passed up by so many players, Celtics included, um, is, is frustrating. Maybe they'll, they'll stop sleeping on Villanova players. They seem to do pretty well in the NBA. He's got so much Shane Battier in him. It's crazy. 
they're they they to me are like the same player where they're play locked on defense and just are great shooters. But yeah, I totally agree. I think that the mindset that players come out of our program from is so like I think unique from from the other blue bloods. Like at Kentucky and Duke, you have all of this like me, 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 I want the ball in my hand. Like look at how great I am. Like that that's a pretty general term, but I think it's a lot more of like scoring and like individual stats. Um, because they recruit so many players in the top 20 of every like high school recruiting class. Whereas Villanova, you know, obviously we do get some, some uh, blue chip recruits. Um, Jeremiah is one of them, but we also have players that were not highly recruited that are the most highly impact players on our team. I mean, Colin, Colin Gillespie had one D1 offer besides us. So, I mean, I think Jay Wright creates a winning basketball culture, regardless of the players that he has there. And I think that just prepares them for any level of basketball that they'll take on once they leave. Yeah, I think Villanova's player development particularly is one of the highest regarded programs in the entire country, but it may still even be a little bit underrated. I think it's it's really interesting to look at Sadiq Bey, a guy who translated almost perfectly for what every single projection thought he could be uh, into the NBA. And I think it's a testament to how Vel- Villanova basketball has prepared him for the step up. I also look at a guy like Mikhail Bridges, who's pretty much stepped into a pretty significant role with the Phoenix Suns who are at the, you know, close to the top of the West Western conference right now. Um, he plays a pretty pivotal role there, a uh, three and D guy. And yeah, it's really interesting to see these Villanova players thrive at the next level. It's great to see. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see more Villanova players kind of being taken towards the upper end of, of drafts. Yeah. And with Bay, I, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but I would say going to Detroit, might have actually turned out to be the best thing for his career in the long run, which, you know, who, who would have thought that in the draft, I was so disappointed that he went to Detroit. I was like, Oh, I, I wish he would go to the nets. Maybe he could get a championship. Maybe I'll get his Jersey. Um, and then Detroit is like the one team that I, I'm not going to get a Detroit Jersey. Um, but the amount of playing time that he gets with them, it's, it's going to be great for his career in the long run. I think he'll, you know, he'll get the bag pretty soon probably i am interested to see how he fits into a lower usage role potentially because i think that is ultimately where he could fit on a championship team i don't know if he's going to be a ball dominant player on a team that reaches or wins an, an nba championship but it is good to see him knocking down 40 percent plus on three pointers consistently i mean that's just going to fit in anywhere he ends up going uh, and I agree. I was a little bit disappointed with this, but it, it is great to see him get much more playing time than I, than I thought he would end up getting. So I definitely agree, but I will be interested to see how he fits into a team where he is not getting as many touches as he is now. Yeah. I'd also add, I think he's a guy that's going to be a high end role player his whole career. Like right now, like you could put Sadiq Bay on the Lakers and he might close games for them. That's how like efficient he is from the field and you know, how like trustable he is on the on the defensive end. So obviously, yeah, love, love Sadiq, but I'm like in other news as well. We did get a recruit in the 2022 class. Uh, Mark Armstrong, who is a top 50 player, four star combo guard. Yeah. Super exciting because to get a guy of that quality this early on in the process does so much for our program and like giving us options to kind of like, maneuver the transfer market, kind of define roles moving forward. And then also you see players um, kind of like recruit like each other um, to come to their colleges. Um, like, I mean, example one is like Tyus Jones back in 2015, like recruited Jalil Okafor um, and uh, Justice Winslow to Duke. So like those, that, that team nucleus was a result of Tyus committing early and then kind of like drawing in his friends afterward. Um, I can kind of see the same thing happening right now because we haven't really had a player like that, that, I mean, besides Justin Moore, that has committed that far in advance in high school. So super exciting to get a guy of that quality. Um, that's going to give us a great insurance plan um, in case Justin Moore leaves for the NBA um, or um, has too much res- responsibility to shoulder. So great job by, by uh, Coach Wright to reel him in. This- you definitely agree. I can't speak to the talent of the player, but – we all know Villanova has built a five-star culture. I love that term. I, that's been thrown around in the Jay media Billis. a little bit. Jay Billis calls us the greatest culture in uh, college basketball. 
And I absolutely agree with that. So, you know, adding great talent to that mix, if it ends up working out well, I know it's not worked out well in the past. You see Javon Quinterly having to transfer, but if it does work out, then, I mean, you see Villanova in the national championship game. So I great pick out. Good to see more recruits signing on. Absolutely love it too. Yeah. Especially, you know, our, our whole guard system, you mentioned Justin Moore and how, you know, Villanova gets this cycle of having a really good guard and then a younger guard come in and, and play that shadow role until they learn the system and then they take over. And, you know, we saw that with, you know, Phil Booth and Brunson and, um, and now it's, you know, Colin Gillespie. And so it's, it's kind of cool to see that continue hopefully. And, um, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited to have another guy like him, but I'm also hopeful that we can get some more big men on the floor, which um, will lead into our next conversation about how, you know, what players are going to stay. Are we going to get a a big guy like Jermaine to stay? Um, Or, you know, are we going to free up that spot? Uh, Would we rather have Colin Gillespie stay or, you know, a bigger player when we have all these guards coming in? So I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think in general, um, with the contributions these guys have given to our program, we should just give them the choice regardless to come if they want. And we would obviously all have them back. But I think having Colin back is number one priority, even though we have these new guards coming in. Because you saw like what happened against Baylor. Like our our lack of um, experience in the backcourt was the reason why we turned the ball over so many times. And, um, you know, to have that guy that can, you know, be the mentor to like an Angelo Brizzy, like Colin was so good for us because he learned from uh, the last year of a Ryan Archidiacono. Like he, he got a taste of like what it takes to be a high level player in college basketball. And he didn't really have that like mentor this year because um, Chris Archidiacono wasn't as good. Um, but by all accounts, Angelo Brizzy is much better. He's a four-star point guard. So if he would get that one year of kind of like seasoning um, as a reserve role um, behind Colin and then take over next year, um, you know, that would be ideal. I also think we did fine without Cosby Rontree. I, I think he's more of just a body. I don't see him, you know, being that high. His only, I guess, real role on the team next season would be to just defend taller players and like make layups, which we could kind of get anywhere on the transfer market. So I don't think he would be as important, but um, obviously would love to see him back as well. And then obviously Jermaine is our Swiss army knife. And I think does so many small things for our team to win. He shows up in every game that we need him to. He's big game Jermaine. I mean, he was almost perfect from the field against Baylor. Um, He can, he's such a versatile player for, for our team that I think, he um, is also a guy that we would love to have back. So that's like my general overview, I guess. Yeah, definitely agree with the the point guard ideas there. I I think Justin Moore, who will likely be our, our top scorer next year, barring Colin Gillespie returning, works best in a combo guard role where he's not bringing the ball up the floor every possession, which, I mean, was evidence when Colin was missing time. Uh, for, for me, I think Colin Gillespie has – potential as an NBA player. I don't know if he believes that similarly, or if he would like to pursue that Avenue in the future. I think if he does, then he would probably end up leaving. Now he did end up missing his last two NCAA tournaments, which can really hurt a guy who as a freshman saw the team win the entire national championship. So I imagine that's frustrating. It's, it's, it's really impossible to know what these guys are thinking. I think Jermaine probably has a higher probability of coming back because he would probably start immediately and pretty much step back into the same role he could he did last last season and the team would be would be really strong I think the team would probably be top 10 with Jermaine back you know that I think the ceiling there is, is pretty high and then uh, it's, it's really hard to know for now but I think yeah I mean we're, we're just gonna have to wait for the decisions to roll down and then kind of look at what the team's gonna be shaping up like I think that point guard position is really going to be vital going into next season. Yeah. And I agree with your point, Andrew, about how, you know, just give them the chance to come back. They've done so much for our program and it, it does help that a guy like Swider is now transferring, which frees up a roster spot, you know, but 
I would love to see any of these people back on our team. I think that they would help us win no matter what. Totally. Well, yeah, with that being said, I guess we can move on um, kind of on the college basketball theme, but from the games last week. So obviously we had um, a couple of, of amazing games, um, courtesy of Gonzaga, particularly um, in the uh, Final Four and uh, National Championship. Um, it featured Gonzaga um, squeaking out an absolute nail biter against UCLA. Um, and that game was probably one of the best games of basketball I've ever watched. Um, and then obviously Baylor blew the doors off Houston and did that again to Gonzaga in the championship. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I guess we can start from the final four and just say that Jalen Suggs was so fun to watch. That was incredible. I think he probably with some recency bias in there, I mean, he was already going to be number two on most people's boards, I think. And I think that cemented his spot. That game was incredible. Not only the, the final shot at the end, but that, that sequence with the block and then that, that pass in between the defense was incredible as well. Um, I, the game overall, though, UCLA was absolutely incredible. I mean, they couldn't have put out a better performance in the game. If not for a, a charge call at the end, which you can go back and forth. I, I think it probably was a charge. It is It is still frustrating that that's the way a game goes sometimes. But UCLA just couldn't miss. I mean, Johnny Juzang, it, every time he touched the ball, you thought it was going through the rim every single time and credit to UCLA and McCronin for drawing up some interesting, interesting plays to get in the ball in different situations. But he was, he was incredible. The team shot 17 of 25 from the mid range of the game, which is 68%. Just to give some context, the best team in the nation um, in, in shooting from, from deep, deep two range is Bucknell at 48.5%. This is about 20 percentage points better. The team was hitting shots from all over the floor uh, it is incredible for the program. And I think next year they're bringing in a five-star in Peyton Watson uh, at small forward and then a four-star in Will McClendon. So they're going to be, they're going to be loading back up for next season and they're going to be dangerous going forward. Uh, definitely incredible game. I completely mirror that one of the best games I've ever seen. And I count myself lucky to have seen that Jalen Suggs shot live. It, it was a great experience. Love the game overall. The Houston Baylor game was definitely, definitely about worse, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for now. Yeah, no, I definitely one of the best games I've ever seen. And, you know, when UCLA is just tugging on my heartstrings like that, that's the only way I want to see them lose because I, I was rooting for them, even though I had Gonzaga winning the whole tournament. Um, I just wanted them to win because, you know, their story and they were a remarkable start to finish. And if they're going to lose one way, I would want them to lose like that because that was just such a historic way to finish out a final four game so that that was pretty incredible and um i don't know what would have happened if you know you didn't hit that shot if it went into overtime but or even if if ucla won that game if they were playing baylor um might that have been a different story um who knows i think definitely and the announcers of the national championship were pretty clear in pointing this out um you know when you're when you're in a nail biter like that in the final four it, it's really hard to focus back on a new game and especially when you're you're about to play the best competition you've ever played all year in Baylor um so the announcers pointed that that out pretty well and you know maybe Gonzaga was just too shook from that last game to really focus up again um so I thought that was probably the story of the the national championship game yeah um, I think, you, you know, that's all great points. I think in terms of the game, uh, UCLA, Gonzaga, just to wrap that up, I think what worked so well with uh, UCLA was Mick Cronin is such a – he's a – it's kind of funny, like, the way – it kind of was a, like a shadow of, like, his entire tenure at UCLA. Like, he was known prior to UCLA as, like, a grit and grime head coach that liked to be tough. His teams at Cincinnati were tough – weren't great shooting, but, you know, they grinded out possessions defensively and won a lot. So his move to the bright, flashy lights of L.A. was kind of seen as like a weird um, culture fit. But the way that he played or he coached that game against Gonzaga kind of like sums that up, right? There, He completely changed the culture at UCLA to be a tough-nosed defensive team that takes good shots offensively and doesn't beat themselves which they were all season long. But why they stayed in the game against Gonzaga was because they adapted to Gonzaga. 
they played the fast paced game, right? Like their uh, their transition game was huge. They made they took and made very tough shots on um, which you need to do to win that kind of basketball game. Um, so I give full credit to McCronin for being versatile and open to adjust his game plan, even though it might not be his perfect like philosophical fit. And then just to note as well, I actually grew up a block away from uh, Jalen Suggs um, in Minnesota. He went to my rival high school. I knew him pretty well. He played in my backcourt, or my backyard basketball court a lot. We, I play basketball, so I played him twice a year, and he was absurd. Um, he actually played on the same team as Chet Holmgren, if you know him. So I also know him pretty well too. But Jalen is like – he's such a winner, right? I mean – he was the quarterback of my high school's football team because we combined with his school and he just like the way that he changes the attitude of an entire team to, to play for each other and to not accept losing as a possibility is just like, it's hard to like put into stats, like what that means, but his attitude and energy and the way that he impacts basketball games is just infectious. And I think he's such a, he doesn't get phased by any pressure. Like he, he's a multiple time state champion in basketball and football. Um, he was absolutely insane. You know, I played against him. He's absolutely absurd. He doesn't get phased by any kind of like pressure from the outside. Like he, he did feel slighted. He didn't get offered by Duke or, or Kentucky. Um, and that pissed him off. Like he, he, he would have loved to get offers from there. So to be at Gonzaga and kind of have that chip in his shoulder all season, I think led to this kind of run that he had. Um, but yeah, he's, he's for sure going to the NBA and, you know, it's kind of crazy to like think about the way that, you know, his life's going to change because of that shot. So, I mean, yeah. it was an awesome game. First of all, that, that is just wild that you are that close to him. that. That is into and Chet Holmgren who also may be going to Gonzaga, which, Side note, Gonzaga's going to I bet he will. That or pro, but yeah. Um, but for, like, a lot of – with the kind of move to uh, the heavy reliance on freshmen for a lot of big teams and, like, the one-and-done era, you see a lot of freshmen who are maybe less invested in games towards tournament time because they know, hey, after this game, we lose. It doesn't matter. I'm making millions of dollars in three months. Then you look at Jalen Suggs, and he's – I mean, he's going to be a top-five pick, and he's putting – everything he has onto the core for Gonzaga. I mean, he's won everything his entire career. And even in that Baylor game, when they're down, and I guess we can shift to shift discussion yeah, let's, there. Let's, yeah, let's shift to the uh, championship game. But there's a lot to go on there. Yeah, I would just say, like, towards the end of the game, I mean, he's in tears. Like, it it means – you can tell it means something to him. And when it comes to evaluating players, I and mean, we can talk about numbers and shooting and and whatever, but then it's really those, those things that you can't quantify. I think you talked about a little bit. But it really – I mean, he's just invested in, and you really love to see it from just a fan. And also I imagine teams, you know, when you look at players who are really invested and really want it at, at that level, I, yeah, I t- totally agree. Just want to mention that. Yeah, dude, he, he was unquestionably the best player for Gonzaga um, in, in the entire tournament. Corey Kispert really struggled to shoot the ball, um, which is not good for his draft prospects. I think before the tournament, he was a pretty surefire lottery pick. Now I think he'll be towards the back end of the first round. Um, but you know, just to put it in perspective, like Jalen in the championship game had 22 points, two steals, and was eight for 15 from the field. Um, in comparison, Corey Kispert had 12 points, um, Drew Timmy had 12 points and, um, the Bulldogs as a team shot 29.4% from three. Um, he was the engine of their team against Baylor who, you know, I, I, once I, I was watching them play, like they're, they, they just had so much of a cohesive attack top to bottom. I mean, I mean, to have Macy Oteague be the third fiddle on that team, is just unfair. Um, but yeah, like, I just think that um, the way that they played, like, I know, like I read the stat that before the game, Gonzaga bought like six bottles of champagne, but then Baylor like found out about it and then used that as like bulletin board material. Um, and I think this, it showed that you, before the game, when I was thinking about, you know, what what the matchups were going to be like and, you know, how each team matched up physically, I just, like, kind of thought to myself, like, they haven't played a team of this, like, caliber all season long. Like, they they did play Kansas. They did play Iowa. But as, as we all saw, like, 
those teams both lost early on in March Madness. So those weren't the best teams in there. And, you know, I think they were just shocked by the skill level and defensive prowess of their backcourt. And then to have Macy Oteague shoot the ball like he did and have Mark Vidal get every single offensive rebound was just, just, just like too much to handle. And I think what the crazy is part of that is four out of five of their starters were all transfers. Like Scott Drew did not have that team as an organic team. He, he worked the transfer market. Um, like Butler was from Alabama. Davion Mitchell was from Auburn. Um, their, their big center. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Not going to try, but he also wasn't from Macy Oteague, Adam Flager, who was absolutely electric off the bench. for Like those were all transfer players and just credit to Scott Drew for being able to mesh all of those personalities together and create one of the best teams, I think, in college basketball history. Because people were talking about Gonzaga as that team all season long, but Baylor only had one loss. Baylor Baylor was as good of a team as anybody throughout the season. Um, and, you know, it's there's, there's no reason to be sad about losing to Kate Cunningham. So I think that, you know, that, that game, well, it didn't, like, have the – it didn't – deliver on the hype that it had prior um, to tip off. But, you know, just watching all of those crazy high level athletes um, compete on the same court um, at the college level, when we'll be seeing them play um, in the the NBA next season was just awesome to see. So um, yeah, Davion Mitchell too, sorry, but uh, Mitchell will be a top 10 pick. You heard it here. Yeah. He was an animal on defense like he has all year. Um, And we saw that in the Nova game. But yeah, I I think if there's one takeaway from this, it's, you know, how much defense drives offense and especially in the college setting. Uh, And and we hear that all the time, but I think this March Madness has really showed that and just the mentality, how much of a mental game, like in particular college basketball is. I mean, that's, that's how we saw that in the Nova game too. Like the reason why Villanova was beating Baylor at halftime, which, by the way, looks a lot more impressive now than ever, is because um, of their mentality coming in. You just saw them. It, it was felt like they were just, you know, slapping the floor on defense, and they were ready to be there, ready to win. And um, that, that was what we saw in UCLA, too. And um, when they were driving all the way to get that that tip to, to tie it up in overtime. And I think that that type of energy that comes from – from the defensive end just really feeds the offense. And that's something I've really learned this, uh, this March madness um, is how much defense drives offense. Yeah. For me, it was really satisfactory to see Baylor hit its high end outcome as a team because they hit a COVID pause in mid February and then ended up losing a game to, they lost, I'm blanking who they lost to midseason, losing to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament. But it was always they could never put together a full 40-minute performance following the COVID break. The defense kind of, you know, the defense was was less stifling as it was before the break. But then once it started hitting the tournament, I feel like it started hitting its groove again. You know, the guards started clicking together after the Nova game. I mean, they handled Arkansas and then Houston. Houston game never close, but I mean, you've got the team who's the best three-point shooting team in the country with three guards who can legitimately play, I mean, some of the best defense in the entire nation. And seeing them able to just completely throw Gonzaga off its game was was pretty incredible to watch. Um, so it, it is – Gonzaga was one of the – was the best offensive team in the country, I think, and then Baylor just being able to stop them. I think their speed was really overwhelming in the game. It's really hard – I, I understand the argument that Gonzaga doesn't play enough competition, but I think when you have a team like this Baylor team, it's just, I don't know if there's another team in the country that has the same level of defensive intensity when they're on their game combined with danger on the offensive end with just the ability for almost everybody on the court to shoot a, and hit a three-pointer from, from, from behind the arc. So uh, yeah, incredible game. I mean, Baylor just thoroughly outplayed Gonzaga uh, frustrating game for Corey Kispert too. Uh, I know that was mentioned a little bit earlier, but he did not play very well. He's been a guy who I thought would also go lottery, but it's looking a little bit, a little bit tenuous now. But the, those are those are my takeaways for sure. And it was it was definitely it was it was nice to see Baylor play to the potential that I think everybody thought they could be, but just didn't know if they could 
Um, and, and putting that performance on, on the court was, was encouraging. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I couldn't help but kind of see as well, like how much Mark Vidal reminds me of like PJ Tucker and the way that, that they play just the X factor glue guy that brings the toughness and like sets the tone on, on the, the, the defensive end. Um, you know, Gonzaga what really plagued them was when you have Baylor shooting 43.5% for three in that game, you cannot under any circumstance, give them extra possessions on the offensive end. Um, and it's, it seems like every possession Baylor had an offensive rebound and had two shots and like that, when, when that is the case, you, you just can't ex- expect to win when uh, Kispert's not shooting. So, I mean, amazing run by Gonzaga. They had an amazing season. Mark Few is an outstanding coach. Um, and I hate the argument of he's not a championship coach because he puts them in the position to win. Like, he, he leads them to an undefeated season um, and with wins over marquee programs and people start to bash him over losing to a team like Baylor who is that hot. Like, that was a bad take, but... Overall, I mean, March Madness is such an amazing time of the year. Um, I, I miss it already, and I can't wait for next season. So I think we should probably move on um, to the next talking point, which I guess is just the idea of college basketball transfers in general. Yeah, this argument is a lot more like like subjective because there are just like so many things to consider when you're talking about the transfer market. The transfer portal life is like I find funny because it's like you can still go back to school if you want. You can go to the NBA or you can stay at your only school or there's just like so many options. So I guess my take, I'll just kick it off. Um, I don't like the culture of the transfer market right now. I think that's a reason why Roy Williams retired. I think that it allows players the chance to bail on their, their universities at the first sign of adversity and doesn't allow teams to build a program at the way they would want to. I, I, I want players to be in places where they feel comfortable and where they can, you know, expand their game to the highest degree. But at the same time, it kind of gives an unfair advantage to a school like a Kentucky, like those big blue blood programs that can just, you know, get the best players from all these you know, like mid-major schools and come to Kentucky and they have an amazing team. Like, I don't like the fact that you can just enter the portal and go wherever you want um, right away. Um, I think it should be more, you know, challenging to do than that. I think it should be um, some kind of change in the easiness of being able to enter the portal. But with the way college basketball is heading right now, like I think the transfer portal is the future. Like like I said before, Baylor, four out of five players on uh, Baylor's, starting five uh, were transfers. And I think like Johnny Juzang transferred from Kentucky to UCLA and um, Quentin Grimes transferred from Kansas to Houston. And so all those kind of factors that you, that you consider as like um, what makes a good basketball team. It isn't the high school kids coming out of, of high school. It's, it's the players that, you know, do do damage at their first school and, and then go where they want for their second. So I think it kind of gives it almost a, free agency appeal um, in pro sports. It's, it's that same kind of idea. Um, but for me, like, like it or not, it's where I guess the game is going. And, you know, I hope these kids make choices, not just for the sake of going somewhere else, but because they actually think they can grow um, like as a player in person and in in, uh, wherever they go. I would probably take the opposite viewpoint in this situation. I understand how it can be frustrating when players from mid-major programs will move to high major programs and potentially, you know, pro- lengthen the the gap between, you know, the top programs and the ones that are, that are challenging for, for spots and, and wins in the NCAA tournament. But what it boils down to me is if, if a coach is allowed to leave a program, then why should a player not be able to leave a program? And maybe not entirely unrestricted free agency. That's like a one-time transfer rule especially when I'm contextualizing a player getting recruited to a school by coach, building a relationship with that coach and being prepared to play within the offense, the defense of a certain coach. And then that coach moving on to a different school. It's kind of like the rug getting pulled out from underneath those players. And so I feel like the player should have the ability to, to move programs and do what's best for them. So at the end of the day, I think the players need to be able to do what's in their best interest. And if that is moving from high, but I think, sorry, I think the players need to be able to do what's best for them. 
And I think it also benefits players who are playing at high major schools who may not be getting the most amount of play time, who are able to move to smaller mid-major schools and play well there, get more minutes, be able to produce higher production numbers and, and play more t- competition that suits them. So I think, I, I think the game is headed that way, but I would support the decision because I, I ultimately would support what that player should do, what is in their best interest for them, whether that be, you know, getting more playing time, trying to play a higher competition, lower competition, and, and ultimately for the, for the high, highest tier players to, to groom their graphs, their draft stock uh, for, for the next level. Uh, so that, that would be my opinion, but I understand how it can be frustrating from a roster building perspective in college basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I can take a, a similar view to Noah. I, and I understand also it's, it's almost like the players are free agents whenever they want to be. So um, that can definitely be frustrating, but um, we also got to remember that, you know, when we talk about the NCAA, we're also talking about, you know, all kinds of players. And so if you have a rule for college men's college basketball, it's probably going to have to apply to, you know, rowing and um, volleyball and all that stuff. And, you know, you look at, at specific scenarios and if you put any restrictions on transferring, then, um, you know, what if someone wants to leave their school because, you know, they can they can go to a different school and get a better scholarship or um, maybe they're they just like another school better. And, you know, these are students, too. So um, I think they should have the right to do that, even though it can be frustrating. Um, and, you know, especially if you know, you look at a situation, maybe there's a, an issue like at Creighton, maybe you don't agree with what your, uh, your coach has been saying in the practices and you want to leave that. I feel like you should have the right to do that as a student. Just zooming out a little bit on another point. We've talked about it a little bit from a player's point of view. And I, I know Andrew's getting at this a little bit, but from a roster building perspective, from the coach and maybe the athletic director to a lesser extent, it does provide an interesting test case for how teams are going to start building their rosters and, and fleshing out the, those 50 man rotations in the future. Because I know in college football, there has been an increase in transfers and some schools have taken the strategy of filling their rosters with almost entirely transfers, which when you have those transfers coming in and taking up scholarship spots, that means you're reducing the amount of recruits you're bringing on, which also it, it builds up an effect down the line where you're going to hit a spot where you're going to run out of a lot of players and you're not going to have those, those high end recruits because you've been relying so heavily on transfers. So when that comes to the end of the line, that, that can have some negative effects. I know Kansas in the, in a football, their football team has, has relied on the strategy in the past. It's not gone very well. That, that program's, you know, experienced a lot of chaos, but then you look at a team like SMU uh, who's had some success, you know, with this strategy and, and Kansas state also in the past. So it, it Baylor winning is very, very convenient to, to show that that you can win with transfers. But uh, it, it will be interesting to see how coaches balance bringing in recruits from high school, but also trying to get transfers to fill out the roster who can maybe you know plug different gaps in, in ways that the recruits cannot. So I, I think it is interesting from that point of, point of view. Um, and it is definitely a complex problem that that does that should require some thinking and, and certainly some rules in the future to to establish it. Yeah. I agree with that as well. Um, I guess my point is more of like just the thoughts behind it. I think it kind of promotes the idea of like a lack of toughness and like loyalty to jump ship at the first sign of trouble and to have that option be so accessible. It doesn't teach kids to like ride out um, what you committed to and like see your plan through and like try to grow in a place that you didn't really give a chance. Um, I also think college basketball now is kind of becoming like a vessel to get to the NBA. Um, whereas it's not a place where kids actually want to go and, you know, have a career in, in college. And I think the transfer portal promotes the idea of players trying to go to a school that will ultimately maximize their draft stock um, above all else. And I just, just as a principle, I don't like that. Like I think college basketball is, is like so fun to watch because you have players like, Jared Butler, who like spend a year like on the bench at Baylor and then has two seasons at Baylor and is now a legend in you know college basketball. Like Corey Kispert for, for, for Baylor is a senior and like one of the most 
um, and it, you know, like fun players to watch in all of college basketball because he stayed at Gonzaga for like so long. He wasn't the top guy at Gonzaga, like um, his first two seasons, right? Like he played behind guys like Nigel Williams, Goss, um, Zach Collins, like those kind of guys, like he had to wait his turn to be the guy. And I think that having like the, the process be more of like a trying to find ways to dissuade players from transferring, I think is more beneficial to the sport of college basketball than all else, which is what I'm for. But I guess with that being said, we can move on um, to a new topic. Um, We kind of went over college basketball pretty well. So that was good. Um, But yeah, the biggest news in the NFL scene today or this week was the Jets trading Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers. Um, I would say it's a pretty much a win-win trade for everybody involved. You know, Sam Darnold gets a new shot with a new coach in a new city um, without Adam Gase on his side. Um, he gets to play for a team that believes in him and has a pretty good, you know, I guess roster around him to maximize his uh, skill set. You know, they have Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore, and a CMC on offense to support him. I think this the idea from Carolina's perspective was they saw what happened with Ryan Tannehill and uh, with the Titans when he left Adam Gase's influence, he became an entirely different player. So I think that's the reason why they made this deal. Um, you know, the Jets, even if they hadn't have traded Darnold, were always going to take Zach Wilson at, at two um, in the draft. So I think to get anything of value back for Sam Darnold was a win. They got a very valuable asset with the uh, with with I think it's next year's uh, second round pick for him plus a fourth round pick, um, you know, which I think is good value for a player they were never going to start next season. Um, and then for, for for Carolina, like they get a chance to get a possible franchise quarterback on like cheap contract on a not much value going back the other way. Like Sam Darnold was the number three pick for, for a reason. He has a lot of talent. And I think to go to a, to a place like Carolina where he isn't going to be surrounded by the media pressure that he had in uh, New York and kind of be able to grow with a roster that doesn't have the pressure that he had um, with all that the Big Apple has um, to offer, I think that's going to be great. So that's my kind of breakdown on it. But I love these win-win trades in the NFL because there's no really – you know, gripes, like other than the fact that both teams are like better than they were before. And this young player has a chance now to prove himself. Yeah, I totally agree that it was a win-win. Um, and, you know, some, I was watching some videos of on ESPN of people debating, you know, which person win would one more. And I'm just like, all right, it was a win-win. Like, like, let's just leave it at that. They both got better. And it's also a win for, it's a win for Sam Darnold too. I mean, he was in a system where people didn't, they didn't really believe him in him as much. They had a new GM, they had a new coach, you know, who didn't draft him. And um, so they, I think, and he's not going to have to be on the jets anymore, which is always a win. Um, but also the jets are going to get pretty good. They got an arsenal of uh, picks in the, in the next few years and they got a new system and um, you know, who knows, maybe they'll score on a few of those. They got 2021. They have the, second and 23rd overall second round pick third round pick third round pick and then 2022 they got two first rounders two second rounders and a third round they're going to be you know taking some some and i think i think zach wilson out of byu is going to be as good if not maybe better than sam darnold we'll see but i think sam darnold would be you know if he were in the draft right now would be around the same um you know pick as a zach wilson so you know, I, I I agree. I think it's a win-win. There there is a possibility this does not turn out very well for the Panthers. Sam Darnold has not really put any good NFL tape out there. I mean, via PFF recently, I mean, when this news came to light, he was 30th on accurate passes from a clean pocket last season. So, I mean, uh, the context has not been very good. And Adam Gase, you know, there can be a lot. There's a lot to be said about him and his his structure and a quarterback, but. We're going to see now because, I mean, moving from Adam Gase to Matt Rule in Carolina, you know, Rule has a, a pretty strong track record of, of building strong offenses. So if, if Darnold has what it takes to be a starting NFL quarterback, then we're going to we're going to see that in Carolina. I, I think it's probably a decent flyer on the guy. It's it's really hard to know because he's just not not been very good. I, it, it, this is going to be a big season for him as well. It's probably pretty low risk. They didn't give up, didn't have to give up too much. 
But now I'm really fascinated to see how the quarterback, how the quarterbacks, you know, fall out in the, in the NFL draft, for lack of a better word, because you see the Panthers picking at eight. They were favored as a team that might trade up to try to take a quarterback. But now you look at the teams ahead of them. You got the Lions, the Dolphins, the Bengals, and the Falcons. So I, I look at two of those teams, the Falcons and the Lions, who have a possibility to take a quarterback, but also could not and, and go for a, a different position. Uh, I, I am really excited to see if any other team decide to trade up. There's a lot of different different possibilities here now. Um, I, it's I, I love all these draft trades. It's it's gonna be gonna be great to see you know what the draft order ends up being on draft night. Who ends up going where? I would definitely agree. I think Zach Wilson's probably better than Sam Darnold, although that team needs a lot of work. That roster's certainly not not full, and I, they're, they're probably gonna end up struggling a little bit next year. Uh, for the Panthers, that the team, I it's it's hard to know where they're going because I don't think unless they think Sam Darnold's going to be their guy going forward. I it's really hard to evaluate from the Panthers on my in my point of view because Sam Darnold has not been very good, but is still young enough to have potential to be good. Uh, so so an interesting trade, I think probably decent value for right now. But you know the ultimate trade, I think grade if you want to you want to give a grade is going to be determined you know done yeah, i agree um also i would say that like i don't know why the jets every season it seems keep trying to solve the their their problem of like not being good with trying to draft new quarterbacks um without any help around them like taking the new guy every year at the top of the draft um without a like good offensive line and offensive schemes and defense to protect the quarterback and offensive line and weapons on the outside. Like he's not going to be successful. Like, like unless you have Patrick Mahomes as, as your quarterback, you need players around you that can maximize your skill set. And the jets keep trying to fix their roster problems by taking the best quarterback they can like on lots of drafts. And I think that it's not in the long run going to help their team as much. But one other point I would say is, um, the Panthers still have Teddy Bridgewater. So I think Sam Darnold has not proven himself to be a better quarterback than Teddy as it is right now. I think the only thing that he has going for him over Bridgewater is his draft pedigree and his age. Um, I think like it's going to be intriguing to see where Bridgewater goes from here because now he's basically stuck in that part of his career where he's now going to be that bridge quarterback. Um, so I could see him going to a team like Denver if they don't want to take on Drew Locke or maybe um, Washington or Chicago or like those kind of teams that need a quarterback but don't actually want Bridgewater for the future just to have a respectable starter. Um, I think this trade in terms of how it affects the first round, like you were saying, Noah, um, I think the Broncos are the big winners of this trade because they're in a position right now in the top 10 to draft a successor. Um, to Drew Locke, who has not lived up to expectations. A big roadblock in that was Carolina because they were picking eight. Now I think they'll go offensive line to protect Darnold. But, you know, I I can see um, like Atlanta taking a, a guy like Kyle Pitts or a, a Jamar Chase to kind of maximize the last years of uh, Matt Ryan's career because I think that's what good teams do. I think good teams recognize what roster needs they have and then fill them with the right prospect regardless of whether they need a quarterback for the future or not like a big reason why I think the Packers didn't win the championship last season was that they didn't have enough weapons to compete with the Buccaneers like the Buccaneers had a bunch of first round receivers they had Mike Evans um, Chris Godwin Antonio Brown and Rob Gronkowski you know to have all those weapons on the outside is a big reason why they were able to win and the fact that the Packers could have had a guy um, like Justin Jefferson or, or uh, Brandon Ayuk um, in the first round to help out um, Aaron Rodgers, that could have been the difference. So I think like teams trying to take quarterbacks and like saying that they'll like figure out a way to play them later, I think is a bad way to build your roster. And I think that the Broncos now, I think their roster is pretty solid from their free agency additions. They signed Kyle Fuller um, they and they have a lot of uh, better DBs as well with Ronald Darby. Um, so I could see them taking a guy uh, like a Mac Jones at nine um, to kind of get them ready to play. But overall, I love those trades. Like you said, Noah. Um, yeah. And I think this, this draft in particular will be so much fun because 
I think five quarterbacks will go in the top 10. It just depends where. So could not be more excited. Uh, yeah. One last thing. You just look at the Falcons for me because there's just so many different options. I know we don't know now who's going to be picking where. I think the Broncos probably right, but I, they may have to end up, may end up trading inside even further just to confirm that they can get the guy they want because, you know, that's, that's always just such a, a fluid process. But the, you look at the Falcons and you don't really know where they could go in a lot of different directions because their, their team's aging in terms of like the offensive talent they have. Matt Ryan's get up, getting up there in age. Uh, he's, he's got a contract situation to where they can move on from him in the next couple of years, which means they, they have the potential to be taking a quarterback there. You've got the new head coach in Arthur Smith who may want to take them in that direction. But then you also, if you take a guy like Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase, you got Matt Ryan, who's still, I mean, he was an MVP a couple of years ago. And then Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, that offense is, would be absolutely just, you know, blowing teams away that season. The defense is another story, but I mean, Arthur Smith plus Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, I mean, just thinking about that, but then they also could trade back for more draft capital to a team who really wants to secure a quarterback. So I definitely agree with this many quarterbacks who are so, you know, sought after. It's going to be super interesting to think, and I, I cannot wait for draft night to see what happens. Yeah, totally. I think those, like, the, just the draft in general, like, is just, like, so fun because you have all those mock drafts coming out and, like, all the, I guess, the media attention that it gets is just makes it one of the best events in sports in the year. So, yeah. Moving on, another good topic to discuss is the return of Kevin Durant. We can make this really quick. Um, I think that he is going to obviously change the dynamic in Brooklyn. They've been playing very well with James Harden and and uh, Kyrie Irving. Um, but how do you see his return impacting the landscape of the league? Yeah, it, it's um, it's interesting to see. I think no one's stopping him. If if he's healthy, and if you know James Harden is playing like an MVP, I think he would be the MVP if he wasn't. Um, you know, stalling out Houston in the beginning. And then you got Kyrie, who's playing as good as he ever has. And I think if they're all healthy and they're all on the floor, like who's going to stop them? Um, it's it's going to be interesting to watch, especially since this is their first year together. You know, it's kind of like a um, Tom Brady and Tampa Bay situation where, you know, all right, let's put together the super team and see if we can get in the first year and, you know, with Tom Brady's case, they did it. So let's see if, if they can do it as well in, in uh, Brooklyn. But um, yeah, no, I, I think this is going to be one of the best teams we've ever seen. If, if it does shape out, I mean, they, the playoffs, it's, it's a different game in the playoffs, right? I think a lot of people say that James Harden chokes in the playoffs and I don't quite agree with that. I think he plays pretty well. He just wasn't I just think Houston wasn't the team to to really excel, but I think how could he not excel when he has you know arguably the best player in the world in Kevin Durant and you know the person who has probably the best handles I've ever seen in Kyrie Irving on his and then I, I don't see anyone stopping him. Yeah, I think this team definitely has the argument for to be one of the best, if not the greatest offensive team we have ever seen with three players who are legitimate offensive threats. And arguably there's, it's, it's almost impossible to guard all three of them. It, it, I will say it is impossible to guard all three of them. If they're on the court at the same time, I think injuries are probably going to be the decider when we get to the playoffs. I looking ahead to a matchup with a team like the bucks, it is going to be interesting to see how they handle Giannis on the defensive side of the ball. So kind of just looking at their, their baseline stats Offensive rating, 118.5. That's top of the league. Defensive rating, 113.7, 25th. So they still, you know, still result with the seventh best net rating in the NBA. But when you're coming up a guy like Giannis, who they don't really have a great guy to throw against him. I mean, Jeff Green's probably not that guy. It's hard to to know, but I I can't wait to see them play in the playoffs. And then if they end up meeting – you know, the Lakers are going to be one of the top teams in the uh, coming out of the West probably, but you know, they're going to have to battle from a lower seed. They do have the best defense in the league. So it, it'll be interesting to see come playoff time, 
how they match up with certain teams because, you know, the seven-game series, it's all, it's all about those matchups. But I think if the offense is clicking, it's hard to see anybody stopping them. I, I definitely agree. What so, about a uh, Blake Griffin yeah. on – on Giannis, I don't know. I just don't think the the Nets like you can have as much offensive firepower as you want, but if you can't play defense and don't have that d- defensive intensity, like I can see, like like obviously they're the clear favorites to win just by the sheer amount of talent they have, but none of Kyrie, Katie, or Harden are known as defensive stoppers, and they don't have a guy like a PJ Tucker or and Andre Iguodala that's known as like matching up with the other team's best player and like playing good defense on them. I think that the, the closest thing they have to that is Jeff green. Um, so I think that it's going to come down to just, if they can score 140 points a night, then they will win. But if they can't, I can see a team like um, a Phoenix suns or Utah, like Utah isn't talked enough about Utah is an amazingly efficient good basketball team like i mean they don't get the love of brooklyn because they're not a big market but i mean mitchell and gobert are one of the best duos in all of basketball and i think the pieces they have around them and like a jordan clarkson off the bench um bogdanovich and mike conley um those are guys that are elite level not elite but like quality nba basketball players and they all play together so Utah is has the best record in the NBA and by far the best net differential. So I'd say watch out for them to upset the Nets, regardless of whether Katie's playing or not. Um, because at the end of the day, Rudy Gobert can guard anybody on that team. So we'll see how it plays out. It's so fun as a fan to watch it because we've never before, I don't think, have had this many all-star players on one team ever, like at this point in their careers. So um, this NBA playoffs um, is going to be fun to watch. It's also weird that we're going to get a playoff soon because we already had one this fall. Um, so we're going to have, I guess, two um, two NBA playoffs in one year because of COVID. So um, it should be fun to see. So yeah, Noah, uh, I when, think if you what, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was gonna I was gonna have one last observation. I was just thinking about you know talking about the Nets and like the best teams of all time. I'll keep it short, but just comparing them to like the Warriors teams with Kevin Durant, that's probably one of the, one of the greatest teams of all time and comparing them to this, this Brooklyn Nets team is so much more of a glass cannon offensively where the, the defensive fragility really hurts them. So if they have an off night shooting as a team, then they have the potential to get kind of blown off the court because their defense is not like they, they can't fall back on their defense. You look at the Warriors team, you have Draymond Green and Kevin Durant when he's playing at an all defense level on that side of the floor. So, it that's what that's what it makes so fun to think about potential playoff matchups is they could have a game where they're blowing the team out and then on the other end you know maybe be at the hands of, of, a, of a result like that so yeah definitely interesting thing sorry i was that's just one last thing i wanted to add about thinking about them yeah no worries i think now we can move on to the wrap-up of the show um yep the mlb is back lots of day games in the in the mlb um, not too much to go off uh, right now, considering it's still so early in the season. I think we have like 156 games left for every team. Um, but it's, I guess, fun uh, to, to see the guys back out um, on the diamond. Um, I love the fact that fans are allowed back in, like in uh, stadiums because it's just like makes baseball so much more enjoyable to watch um, when you have all those factors. Because I think baseball, more so than any other sport, is influenced by the environment that you play in because it's like so quiet and fans can get, get in the heads of players pretty easily. So the fact that that factor is now back in the equation is awesome to see. Um, injuries have, have been uh, the, the early, I guess, like, like storyline of the season. Um, the, my hometown twins lost Josh Donaldson to a hamstring strain. Um, and the big slugger from the White Sox, Aloy Jimenez is out for this. So, um, keep an eye on baseball moving forward. Um, it should be fun to watch this summer. So, yeah, that's kind of all I really have for baseball, unless you guys have anything else. Quick questions. Just something I, I you know, looked at. It's all reason I'm not, not a big baseball guy myself. But I saw that Trevor Bauer is maybe under yeah. investigation for, 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 his, for his balls. What, the what league happened is obsessed with spin rates on baseball. Um, so the higher your spin rate, um, the more likely – 
in the league's eyes that you're tampering with the ball. So I think they're checking his balls for like residue of like pine tar um, or like cutting it up with, to, to make the ball like spin weirdly. But like, again, like I just think that that's part of the game and like that happens. And I wish that the league would just kind of let that go because I don't see that as like blatant cheating. Whereas, you know, the Astros scandal was completely different. So yeah, the, the, the league keeps track of all uh, pitchers spin rates and the ones that are highest um, they'll, they'll bring in to check to see if there's any like foreign substance involved. Interesting. Interesting. Especially from a yeah, sports analytics perspective that they, they can collect all that data yet. Yeah, and I would just agree with what you were saying, Andrew, about having fans back in, in the stands. It's, it's great to see. And I, I think it's, it's actually kind of even more impactful on the game now, because, you know, if you're in the stands, there's not a lot of fans in most games, unless you're in Texas, um, but there, you can really just yell to the players because they can hear you like straight up. It's like you're in a high school game, which is kind of cool. It's kind of unique. Yep, for sure. And uh, with that being said, Noah, you want a quick recap uh, the uh, Champions League? Yeah, for sure. So we had the first leg of the the quarterfinals of the Champions League this past week. Uh, so we had some four four interesting games that I'll, I'll touch on some of the highlights. Uh, some of them. So first up, we got Manchester, Manchester City taking a 2-1 lead over Borussia Dortmund. Uh, a little bit of a surprising result. Man, Manchester City has one of the best defenses in all of Europe this past season. So Dortmund able to get one goal and put up uh, solid underlying numbers in terms of creation was was impressive. There was a, a little bit of controversy in the game when Borussia Dortmund player Jude Bellingham scored a goal after the whistle had been blown in, in a goal that should have counted but didn't end up counting. Uh, so that you got the second leg, Manchester City has been notorious for blowing Champions League games in the past, but Borussia Dortmund's going through a, a rough period right now. They they lost to Eintracht Frankfurt at the weekend, which means they likely will not be qualifying for the Champions League through their domestic league this season, which is a huge problem when it comes to financing the team and could have repercussions in terms of roster management in the future. So I expect Manchester City, Manchester City to take the second leg of this, but... They do have a history of, of blowing these types of games, and Dortmund has the type of attack that could pounce on any potential mistakes. Moving on to a game that's, that's closer to my heart, Real Madrid versus Liverpool. Uh, Real Madrid takes the, the first, like, 3-1. I'm a big Liverpool guy myself. Uh, definitely a frustrating game. Liverpool's defense was, was much too transparent in the game. They gave up 2.1 expected goals, which is, which is far too many for a team playing in the, in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Uh, Naby, the, the midfield pairing at the start with Naby Keita was frustrating for Jurgen Klopp as manager, ended up taking him off before halftime. Uh, granted, the team played better with him off the field. However, it, it is frustrating as a fan and for, for the Liverpool team to have to make a tactical change so early in the game. Uh, Real Madrid benefited from 13 chances. Uh, Vinicius Jr., winger, scored two goals. Uh, and the, all, all this without their two starting center backs in uh, Rafael Varane and Sergio Ramos. Uh, looking ahead, Liverpool has a, a notorious history for coming back, especially against Spanish teams, uh, notoriously being Barcelona 4-0 on the second leg of a Champions League tie to make the Champions League final uh, two years ago. But it's hard to see Real Madrid handle this game. They, they were able to get, kind of score goals at, at will, and they've got a two-goal lead coming into this. So I, I do expect Real Madrid to take it, although Liverpool does have a penchant for coming back in these types of, of matchups. Uh, one of the most exciting games came with Bayern Munich versus PSG. Uh, really open game, you know, over five total expected goals created, which is uh, almost unprecedented. Uh, both teams really did not have a lot of defensive solidity at the back. Uh, PSG emerged victorious with a 3-2 scoreline, despite underlying stats suggesting Bayern Munich played a better game which is probably true. Bayern Munich were missing their talisman and Robert Lewandowski at striker, which probably contributed to their lack of being able to convert the chances that they were able to create. Uh, Lewandowski will likely be missing the second leg as well, looking ahead. But the story of the game for PSG was uh, Kylian Mbappe scoring two goals, incredible talent for the team. And when you're going to give Neymar for PSG a lot of room to operate in the midfield as a number 10, I mean, that's just not going to go very well for you. That's, I mean, that's all it is when you have Mbappe and Neymar running at your back line, who's is already going to be a little bit higher up the field than uh, traditional defense. Then, I mean, that's just going to lead to goals. So PSG 
ended up giving up a lot of chances, but emerging three, two victorious um, with those three away goals, looking ahead to the second leg, it could really go either way because Bayern Munich were able to, you know, get as many opportunities as they could in the first leg. I expect that'll be the same in the second. I would expect Bayern Munich were much better in this leg. I expect them to be better again in the second leg. And I think that they will be able to overcome this deficit and move on. Uh, finally, a game that I did not get to watch was uh, Chelsea 2-0 over Porto. Uh, really frustrating game from Chelsea, despite a 2-0 win. They gave up 12 shots to a Porto team that's been notorious for just defending. That's you know one of the, the things they rely on the most. Chelsea were able to create the better chances on the day, but it, struggling to stop a Porto team from getting a lot of opportunities can be a little bit annoying despite the 2-0 scoreline. Chelsea will likely go through uh, in the second leg, but combining this with the the 5-2 loss to West Brom last weekend, who's a, a relegation battler, uh, it, the Chelsea defense is looking a little bit less stable than it has in the past, uh, and their attack was, was certainly less co- cohesive in this game. I was not able to watch, but just reading some match reports, uh, way, way, way more isolated from the midfield than, than it should be. Uh, so I expect them to go through, but it also is worrying when looking ahead to future games in the Champions League and also in the league as they're battling for Champions League qualification in the Premier League. Uh, so that, that'll wrap up the Champions League. Just a little a quick note on all the teams, but yeah, looking looking ahead to those games in next Tuesday and when. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground tonight. Um, hopefully we, we give you guys a good picture of uh, the last few weeks of sports. Um, We'll be back in action sometime next week. And I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you guys again. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, everyone.